0: your championship listen to this crowd Braves and baseball talk straight from the diamond here's Grant McCauley hello again and welcome to another episode of from the diamond I'm Grant McCauley and once again time to discuss the Braves and Major League Baseball but I think this is a little bit more special show just because this weekend we have ourselves some exhibition baseball as things get kicked off in Florida and in Arizona. We got grapefruit, we got cactus, whatever it is you need, whatever league it is you pull for. We've got some baseball games happening and it all begins this weekend. So we're looking forward to talking about all of that as Bill Rowland joins me for our starting nine and we go through the nine biggest stories of the week across Major League Baseball. So looking forward to getting to that when Bill joins in just a moment. As always, I want to let you know you can find From the Diamond on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Had a lot of ratings and reviews rolling in. Really appreciate those. Those help out immensely, so keep them coming, and thank you very much. And be sure you're connected with the show and with me and with Bill on social media, on Twitter, at from the diamond is where you can find the show. I am at Grant McCauley, G-R-A-N-T-M-C-A-U-L-E-Y, and Bill Rowland can be found at Bill Rowland, B-I-L-L-R-O-H-L-A-N-D, On Instagram, find the show at fromthediamond with no underscore. And find me at Grant McCauley there. And everything can be found from this show, every episode of the show, the full archive, and all the articles and other fun stuff is available for you at fromthediamond.com. That includes my Braves Positional Preview Series. All five parts of the written preview series are posted. And I've started a new project with Corey McCartney, my buddy who worked for a long time with Fox Sports South, now doing some writing for Talking Chop. Also, the author of Tales from the Atlanta Braves Dugout with a new updated edition of his book coming out at the start of March. Corey's going to join me. We're going to do all five parts. We started with the rotation, we'll do the bullpen, the catchers, the infield, and the outfield, and we'll release all of those as the audio companion for the Braves positional preview series. So, a five part podcast series on the Braves breaking down each and every positional group and that'll come your way on fromthediamond.com and it'll go right to whatever podcast app you subscribe to as well so I look forward to bringing you a little bit more insight on the Braves as they begin Grapefruit League play this weekend so let's widen our focus and take a look at what's happening across Major League Baseball it is yet another week which means more Astros news which is just what everybody wants but we're going to try to keep it focused here there's there's simply too much to choose from it's almost just well it is overkill that's for sure but We, I think, have narrowed down the topics to discuss the latest in that debacle. But, um, Bill, I guess as we play this little game, I want to call who of the Astros pissed off this week. We're also going to talk about some other fun stuff, so good to have you back on the show.
1: Yeah, thank you, Grant. I appreciate it. And, And right now that list is very, very long as far as the Astros go.
0: No, it most certainly is, and that list is growing by the day. And one of the things, I think, that has drawn a lot of I would say not just disapproving looks, but a lot of disapproving words has been the handling of this entire thing by Commissioner Rob Manfred. And over the past week, he held court at the Braves new spring training facility down in Northport, Florida. And there was considerable backlash for some of Manfred's comments in the wake of the Astros press conference we discussed last week in which Jim Crane and company essentially apologized for getting caught and said that their 2017 World Series was a legitimate win for them. Manfred went as far as to make the reference to trying to punish the Astros by taking it away. He referenced a World Series trophy that bears the commissioner's seal in a very, I would say, inappropriate way for most people listening. The idea of, you know, an asterisk or asking for a piece of metal back um, seems, you know, sort of a futile act. All right, Bill, while Manfred has since clarified his remarks and apologized for it. Could you imagine NHL officials referring to the Stanley Cup like this as a piece of metal?
1: Yeah, if Gary Bettman did that, most hockey fans don't like Gary Bettman to begin with. So Mm -hmm. if he were to do this, I imagine he'd be run out of the NHL within 48 hours, if not within 24 hours, because it wouldn't be just the players and fans. The owners in the NHL would be put off by... You know, that type of comment. And as bad as we've talked about Jim Crane, the Astros Mm -hmm. owner, not being able to read the room, that is a horrific job by Manfred in this because he's not speaking for just a team, as Jim Crane would be. He's speaking for the entirety of Major League Baseball. And to call their trophy just a piece of metal, yikes, not a good look.
0: No, not at all. And I know that he was referring to the trophy itself. But as you and I both know, and anybody who's played this game knows, that it's not just about the trophy. It's what that trophy represents as the pinnacle of the sport. The highest honor that you can achieve as a member of a baseball team is to win the World Series, and there are many, many, many players that never get to do that. So I honestly could not believe that he thought that that would be an appropriate phrase to describe the commissioner's trophy.
1: Right, and as you said, the seal is on the trophy. Yeah. His name basically goes with that trophy. And for him to be as flippant as he was, now he's since apologized because he had to. Because if he didn't, he would have been run out. But it's amazing to me that he's looking at this. And and I'm surprised. I mean, Jim Crane, I get, we we saw the stories during the week and I tweeted it to you and, and to show you that, mm-hmm. hey, you know, it sounded like his PR people want him to do stuff. And he's like, ah, this will blow over by spring training. So he had no idea how to read this. Manfred seems to be in the same boat like he made a comment he can't believe the amount of conversation that's gone on about players by other players he's baffled by this How? why are you surprised How? at this
0: it doesn't make any sense it makes no sense and look at the, what well, the players are uniting in a way that is obviously not going to be great for the commissioner's office because he is pretty much got a target on his back at this point and if he didn't for maybe not handing out a stiff enough punishment to please some of the rest of the league or all of the rest of the league as the case may be referring to the trophy in this manner justin turner i think was the most interesting of the uh, big time loaded comments that were thrown out in the wake of the piece of metal controversy we'll call it that because he said that rob manford was devaluing their trophy and in fact the one thing that devalued it the most was the fact that it said commissioner on it i mean We talked about Trevor Bauer kind of taking shots at a sitting commissioner and how we don't see very many athletes doing that. Well, about the time we were saying that is when Rob Manfred opened his mouth and inserted his foot. And a lot of players have really taken umbrage with the fact that he would refer to the trophy and I guess really the act of winning the World Series in such a manner, as you mentioned, that was just completely flippant.
1: Yeah. And I'll be surprised if he doesn't have to even go further than this. And I know there's been a lot of of players and fans and and look, Manfred's not going to necessarily listen to the fans, but players that have said, Hey, this punishment is a joke. I'm not sure you can retroactively go back and fix the fact that there wasn't punishment, but certainly I think Manfred and the Astros are going to have to continue to answer for what they said and Mm -hmm. how it was handled I don't think we're ever going to get a satisfactory answer, but the questions are going to continue to be asked throughout the season.
0: Yeah, there's no two ways about that. And we're going to talk a lot here in just a moment about the player backlash. But as you mentioned, the inability to quote-unquote read a room for Rob Manfred with his press conference that really didn't accomplish a lot. I don't know what he wanted to get out of that, but I don't think anything really got the you know the check mark into the box as a mission accomplished as far as that's concerned. This Astros thing, as we mentioned, it's been ugly I think it's going to continue to get uglier. And now that you've gathered all the players back together in 30 different clubhouses across Major League Baseball, there's going to be a lot of thoughts, and we're going to read a lot of them and hear a lot of them, and we're going to do some of that in this very show.
1: Yeah, and as you mentioned, the player backlash is continuing as it pertains to Houston and the cheating and the relative lack of punishment handed out by Manfred and company. The best player in the game, Mike Trout, shared his take on the fallout. And he said the players who participated deserve to be punished. He's not alone in all this, but do you think MLB had any clue how bad this uh, lack of player repercussions was going to affect the game? And especially, as we just talked about, not just the fans, but the players themselves.
0: Yeah, it's really fascinating to me to hear this many players have these kind of strong opinions. I know that you get on Twitter and there's a new batch of them every single day. You've got Aaron Judge, I know, was very outspoken about you know, the losing to the Astros in the American League Championship Series in 2017. I'm sure that it didn't really sit well that they lost to him again in 2019 as well. But when you go back and look at the things that the commissioner's report was able to prove, 2017 has a huge, just bunch of question marks put on it. And players are now asking those questions and trying to figure out how exactly do you levy some kind of punishment? You know, how do you get justice for this? And, You know, a a lot of people are divided, I think, on how exactly you do that. But the one thing that seems to be uniting pretty much every player is they don't feel like the players who were involved in this scheme got punished at all. And I don't know if Rob Manfred really thought this through when he granted immunity for all of these guys, but it rings pretty hollow. In general, you also really didn't hit the Astros in the pocketbook where I think it would hurt him the worst. But you've got Mike Trout out there talking. I mentioned Justin Turner was very outspoken. Uh, Joe Musgrove was on the 2017 club that won the World Series as far as Houston is concerned. And I think that he even recognizes the fact that, you know, they don't really hand these things out. So there's a lot of people that are going to be upset about the commissioner's trophy remarks and uh, the fact that really there doesn't seem to be a whole lot happening to the 2017 Astros from a player perspective in all of this. In fact, there's a, a whole bunch of nothing that's going on and a whole bunch of players are up in arms about it. On the 29 other teams across baseball.
1: Yeah, I don't think Major League Baseball had any idea this was going to blow up the way it has and will continue to do. You know, we've talked about this in the past, Grant. This is the 1919 Black Sox scandal, except it's with 24-hour social media and instant commentary and everything else that they didn't have back then. Every fan, every player is going to have an opinion on it. And when the fans outside of Houston, of course – are agreeing with the players and their stance on it, they're going to feel even more empowered to say things and react to this because they know that the fan base in their hometown is going to support them and be behind them. So I think they feel more emboldened to say, look, this was completely wrong. The only guy that I've seen so far, and there may be more, and maybe I've missed it because there's been quotes from just about everybody that's come out in the last week, as you said, now that the players and everybody's back in spring training – But Anthony Rendon just kind of went, yeah, they shouldn't have done it. But you know what? In a way, everybody tries to get a little bit of an advantage. You think about, you know, a speeding ticket or something. I'm sorry. I like Anthony Rendon. He brought Washington a World (laughs) Series, had a big hand in it. That is a terrible, terrible way to compare somebody driving 75 and a 65 on the highway and what the Astros were doing affecting other people's livelihoods. It, it just – I get what he's trying to say, that we're not all perfect people, but that was just completely misguided in my opinion.
0: Yeah, I that, i think that is misguided, and we're going to get into something else that was certainly misguided in just a moment. But I found it to be also a, kind of an interesting follow-up when you have Mike Trout coming out and being very outspoken about the fact and then Anthony Rendon kind of coming in with basically a big shoulder shrug in some ways or at least a redirection of, yeah, look, everybody – obviously knows as human beings that mistakes are made but not everybody actively chooses to cheat at their sport or their profession for a long period of time and then only apologize for it basically because they got caught and that's how the astros apology has been taken i think by just about everybody and even as we were talking about last week with well carlos correa was really candid about some of this stuff it didn't take carlos correa very long to become the mouthpiece for a whole bunch of other things that just kind of fell in line with with everything else and Um, you know, I just don't feel like we're going to find anything good as far as that justice, I guess we were talking about, or the kind of fines or suspensions or things that could be levied that might make some of the other people happy that are calling for more to have been done. I really think that Jim Crane, especially, and perhaps Rob Manfred both thought that, Hey, we'll weather the storm. It'll blow over by spring training and nobody will be talking about it. And that is the exact opposite of the way this thing has played out.
1: Yeah, and I think Houston this season, um, again, they're talented enough that they still should be a contender. It's going to be interesting. I don't think most fans around Major League Baseball are ever until this crop of players is gone. uh, I don't think they're ever going to think that Houston is a legitimate division champion. If they go out and win the division this year, I still think that fans will have questions because – Look, if you did it once, there's no reason to think that you wouldn't try to figure out some other way to do it again.
0: Yeah, and you can't really believe anything these guys are saying at this point because they have no credibility whatsoever. And uh, one of the things that was going around on social media this week, I know a lot of us follow Rex Chapman, who gives us all kinds of fun videos and things to enjoy and pass the time with. He threw out the question of, you know, what would make you happy as far as the punishment was concerned? My answer to that was, strip that title, take that away give them a three-year playoff ban so they can't go back to the World Series and hit them in the pocketbook. Whether you're able to find them again or not, doesn't sound like they're able to, but you don't let this team go to October. Maybe they decide they want to trade this guy, or they have to trade this guy, or their team has to come apart. They're not going to make the same kind of money when they're sitting there under a three-year playoff ban, and that was just kind of my ideas for it. I know it's not going to happen, but it's just, as I look at it, I'm sure there would have been backlash from possibly different pockets of the league and the players association, all those kinds of things. But that would be in an ideal world. If I could levy a punishment, that would be what I would have handed down, but I am not the commissioner of baseball.
1: No, it's not bad. You probably should be though. You probably do a better job.
0: Well, it's a tough job. That's for sure. And there's again, a lot of opinions that are rolling in on this and a lot of player opinion. And, David Ortiz, the Red Sox legend, spoke to the media at spring training on Thursday and delivered a very different message than some of the outspoken players, including Mike Trout, that we've discussed in this very show. In fact, he decided to really take aim at Mike Fires, who has been looked at as the central figure for blowing the whistle on the Astros' sign-stealing scandal. So take a listen to what David Ortiz had to say.
1: I'm mad at, at this guy, the pitcher that came out talking about it, and let me tell you why. Oh, after you make your money, after you get your ring, you decide to talk about it? Why don't you talk about it during the season when it was going on? Why, don't, why, why you didn't say, I don't want to be no part of? Oh, now, nah. So you look like in a snitch. You know what I mean? Why you got to talk about it after? why don't you, that's, that's my problem,
0: you know. Why, why nobody say anything while it was going on? People is not stupid. What do you think on Ortiz's take here, Bill?
1: look, it's the same thing that Pedro Martinez said back in January when he called uh fires, a bad teammate back then for snitching people out. I don't get, I mean, does David Ortiz know that, that Mike fires didn't go to the, the the team and say, guys, this is ridiculous. Cut it out. Cause obviously other people did and it didn't stop. Right. So we don't know that, that fires wasn't one of those guys. that was like, Hey, and he's not benefiting from it. He's not hitting. Not at all. He's a pitcher. So it, it wasn't going to benefit him one way or the other. So I'm not sure where, you know, David Ortiz and Pedro Martinez expect these guys to go. And look, I'm a Red Sox fan. These guys brought me a couple titles. I love them both, but they are completely on the wrong side of this thing. I'm glad that Fires came out and said it. Granted, he opened up the Pandora's box and now we can't get away from it. But baseball needed this because you listen to guys talk about it now. And every single one of them that played the Astros in big games, in the playoffs, in the World Series, talked about how you knew you had to have a bunch of different signs going in there. Mm -hmm. But nobody could really point it out and point the finger at them because they're going to look like sore losers because they lost to Houston. Well, fires took that all away from them. Now they don't look like sore losers. They look like brilliant guys for knowing what was going on. But the Astros are now the ones that look petty in all of this. So I'm okay with what Fires did. I don't know where Ortiz and Martinez get off saying that he's a bad teammate or a snitch or whatever it is.
0: Yeah, look, I understand that there's a code amongst teammates. And really, I think this is in just general relationships across life about as things go on and you try to navigate, there are sometimes going to be some difficult decisions that you're going to have to make. And some of them that I'm sure a lot of us would like back in hindsight and as you mentioned as a pitcher he's not benefiting directly from that in terms of his stats improving as a pitcher he's still got to go out there and get outs and Mike Fires did win a World Series so the benefit of the Astros hitters being so good clearly is that you can win baseball games but as Mike Fires moved on in his career and ended up with Oakland I heard Steven Piscotty on MLB Network Radio saying that you know it wasn't just mike fires but he was the first guy to kind of put his name on it and publicly when asked about it kind of opened that door as you mentioned pandora's box but he was not the only guy who had communicated this to the league i know the oakland athletics had reported this prior to uh, you know the big investigation that had finally gone on where the commissioner's report came out and the astros finally kind of got called out for the things that they had done and some of it i guess finally saw the light of day for a lot of other people but There was suspicion of this going on for quite some time. And to go back to David Ortiz saying, you know, well, Mike Fires just looks like a snitch here because why wouldn't he do it when it mattered? I mean, calling into question the character of any member of the Astros in 2017 I think is a fair take because everybody was benefiting from all the winning that they were doing. But on the other hand, this was going to come out some way or another in the age of free agency and teams moving around and whatnot. I just don't see how there was any way to avoid somebody finally talking about this and it finally coming out. So it really doesn't matter who it is. But I think it's just a really bad take to look at it and be upset at the first person who, again, put his name on it and kind of opened the door for everything because it doesn't change what happened. Like, it doesn't make it any better. It doesn't make it any worse for that matter. It's just the facts finally came out. And I just don't see how David Ortiz can look at that as a bad thing
1: as we've said, I'm not sure what his mindset is on that. I mean, unless there's something that those Red Sox teams that he were involved in had going on as well. And he doesn't want anybody snitching him out. I don't know, but it just doesn't, doesn't make any sense to yeah. me that these guys would think that what he's done in unleashing this investigation in major league baseball is a bad thing. Cause it wasn't going to come out if players didn't talk because the commissioner had been told about it. Other teams had gone to Major League Baseball, as you said, other players and went. Yeah, other players and said, "Hey, what's going on here in Houston?" And they were just kind of like, "Sweep it, sweep it. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it." And it wasn't until fires and and other people started really chirping about it that they their hand got forced and they had to take care of it. So, to me, ultimately, that's all that matters. It isn't the same thing as if a murder were committed. I'm not putting the baseball right, team on right. the same line as that, but. If you know about a murder, I don't care if you tell the police a week after it happened or two years after it happened. As long as the people who committed the murder get caught, that's all that ultimately matters. In this case, even if it was two years after the fact, fire still made sure that the people that were doing it got caught and put an end to it.
0: Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, at some point, there was going to be a reckoning for this. And I think that most of the Astros players had to be pretty aware of that because The more people that you tell and the bigger the circle gets, the harder it is to keep something secret. And I think at some point this was bound to come out, whether it was 2019, 2025, 2039. It doesn't matter when it came out, but obviously it did not take too many years. And obviously there was a lot of cheating going on during those years that might have really elevated the level of concern around the league because there were enough people that reported it to Major League Baseball, but baseball kind of looks bad for not looking into it hard enough or going far enough with an investigation prior to everything that transpired over the winter here so an interesting story that seems to have many tentacles all wrapped around just about every possible angle that you can get in baseball and i don't know that that's going to stop anytime soon but bill i certainly am looking forward to talking about some of the other things that are going on because i'm kind of excited to have spring training back so that we can start to move past just nonstop astros talk every single day
1: Yeah, let's move on from the Astros now. Let's talk a little bit about Chris Bryant, who says he has no hard feelings after losing his service time grievance. In fact, he thinks this case is going to help the players in the future. So while Bryant trade is still a talking point, it's fascinating to see where Bryant's lengthy service time dispute shakes out as the players union and the league work towards a new CBA.
0: I think this is going to be one of the main focal points of at least beginning dialogue that's going to change the system of how long teams have player control. And of course, the outdated system in which you can leave a player in the minor leagues for a couple of weeks and gain an entire extra year of service time. This is, has been around for you know decades now. This is not a new thing that's come along in the last couple of three years. Many players have been left down in the minors, some of them to avoid the Super 2 status as far as arbitration players. They'll get called up much later in the season. But this service time thing, I think, is something that the players' union really needs to focus in on in terms of wins that they want to have in the next CBA and just so that guys kind of get treated as fairly and properly and directly as you can when it comes to service time because taking two weeks off of the season and giving that club an entire another year of arbitration control of that player I don't know who agreed to this to begin with, but it seems like a, a pretty bad faith agreement that gave the owners a, a tool that they you can't get mad at them for using because it was collectively bargained.
1: Right. It, that's That was the rules. They have played by the rules. Even if the rules seem to be a bit yeah. shady, well, then go and fix the rules. So I give Chris Bryant a lot of credit in this grant because this could have been Way more ugly than it got. And you also see some of Bryant's comments that he still wants to be in Chicago. He's always said that he wanted to spend his entire uh career as a cub. And and he said, you know, again, no hard feelings in all of this. And while it may not be on the level of what Kurt Flood was able to do back in the 70s right. to bring about free agency in Major League Baseball, I still think, as you just said, this is going to benefit players down the road. And a lot of people will have Chris Bryant to thank because. While he wasn't the first or the last guy to be affected by this, he was the first guy to really step up and say, you know what, I'm going to file a grievance. I'm going to try to force Major League Baseball's hand. So while he misses out on probably getting that big monster contract, I'm not sure what kind of deal he'll get at age 30 when he becomes a free agent. He's still going to make a lot of money, so I don't feel bad for him. But at least he was able to put himself out there and say, you know what, I'm going to do this for the benefit of others coming after me. That's how all of this has to work in whether it's football, baseball, hockey, etc. Anytime you have somebody that's willing to push the envelope to try to get more for the players coming after them, you have to feel good and applaud them for those efforts.
0: Yeah, I think that you do. I mean, Chris Bryant accomplished a lot in a very short amount of time. He had a great spring training in 2015. Then he was sent to AAA to start the year, called up not too long after the season started, won the Rookie of the Year. Then he won an MVP. The Cubs won a World Series. Pretty fairytale start to anybody putting on a Cubs uniform in the first couple of years of their career, especially that World Series thing, because that had not happened in 108 years. So Bryant's accomplished a lot for the Cubs, but I think what he has accomplished by bringing a lot of attention to this service time thing, that may be ultimately a big part of Chris Bryant's legacy.
1: Right, and I think, again, as players look back at Kurt Flood, Down the road, players may look back at Chris Bryant and and feel the same way. It's not quite the same level, but if you're getting a guy an extra year or, or a quicker year to getting that big contract, it can make all the difference.
0: Yeah, and with Marvin Miller going into the Hall of Fame as part of the class of 2020, it's worth going back, and if you have not and are not really familiar with all the circumstances surrounding Kurt Flood, I mean, a quick Google search will pull up a lot of great articles. Even Kurt Flood's Wikipedia page, I would say, would be, full of some very interesting information about how exactly free agency found its way into major league baseball and the sacrifice of years of his career really for kurt flood because he was not i mean he came back and played again after that but was not the same guy as he was before doing his holdout and trying to get into free agency himself he ultimately did not get there but a few years later free agency came along and marvin miller was a central figure in all of that so uh, as things go Go read up on Kurt Flood. I think you'll be interested in that if you love the history of the game. And it'll give you maybe a little bit of insight on why exactly it was important for Chris Bryant to hold on to a grievance like this for a number of years and not just let it be water under the bridge back in 2016. Uh, So Chris Bryant has been an interesting topic when we talk about possible trades. But when we think about third baseman who may be on the block, we also have to talk about Nolan Arenado as he is the Rocky star third baseman who spoke to reporters this winter about feeling disrespected by colorado's front office all the trade rumors of course and it seems to be kind of a cold war between him and uh, the colorado higher ups he even said the rumor of being traded for bryant would quote be interesting to him which i found to be interesting as well uh, arenado though the subject of these ongoing rumors all winter said he's committed to the rockies but bill i have to ask you are they committed to him because the lack of their moves this winter would signal that perhaps they are not as committed to arenado as they might have let on when he signed his big extension last year.
1: Yeah, I don't know if things changed over the course of a year. I don't think you give a guy eight years and $260 million if you feel like you're just going to then turn around and trade him uh, a year or two later. But it's funny, both he and Bryant said that they aren't holding grudges about their situations, albeit they're very different situations. I think Arenado's situation is a little bit stickier because he did sign that big deal, eight years and $260 million. And then talks about being disrespected by the organization, not quite sure I'm following the logic on that, other than maybe he feels disrespected because, as you said, they're not going out, and they didn't make a big splash in yeah. free agency. I will say this. You talked about the higher-ups, and Colorado's GM had a, a comment this week, and it kind of rubbed me the wrong way in this, when he said that um, you know he'll get a chance to sit down and talk with Arenado. At some point, he's like all the players We'll find time to sit down. I've seen him. We've said hello, but we haven't sat down. Dude, this is the guy who is angry at your organization. Right. You need to sit down with him. If not meeting him before spring training starts, the first couple of days you need to be like, hey, man, do we need to do dinner? What, what do we need to do? We need to sit down. So I get it from that part. He's the cornerstone of that franchise. They need to make him happy. But I'm not sure, again, Aaron Idol talking about being disrespected, I don't think anybody gives you $260 million if they don't respect how good you are.
0: Yeah, I think that really where he's feeling disconnected from the club as far as their communication is concerned is, A, as you mentioned, I mean, to not have a conversation with your star player basically all winter long is what it sounds like, and the fact that they really didn't even connect before spring training so that they could maybe come in on somewhat amicable terms or at least knowing what exactly they're looking at going forward. So the ball kind of got put in Arenado's court to – go ahead and handle it in front of the camera which puts some pressure on him because clearly he wants to communicate his point but he doesn't want to come out like looking like the bad guy but the more quiet that the rockies front office is about this the more that you just kind of have to wonder what exactly they're thinking and i bring up the are you committed are you not committed because you got this guy an extension you gave this guy an extension a big time amount of money 260 million dollars over eight years but with that Arenado was kind of committing himself to the idea of we can win in Colorado they've done a little bit of that with him in a Rockies uniform but they haven't taken those next big steps and I think he was interested in sticking around insofar as the Rockies were committed to winning you go out and lose about 90 games a year which is what happened in 2019 and then don't do anything to try to course correct that by making a couple of trades or maybe signing a free agent even if it's not the biggest name that's out there that i think had arenado thinking well what exactly are we doing because the clock keeps ticking and chris bryant said this hey i'm not getting any younger so i've just got to go out and you know play with the opportunity that's in front of me arenado's got a little bit more cost certainty and he's going to be making a lot of money but i'm sure he'd like to win at some point and for colorado they've had some highs but they have had a very difficult time getting to the top of the mountain if you will and winning a world series and it hasn't happened yet
1: Yeah, In Colorado, their front office, again, even if you end up trading Arenado a week later, a day later, doesn't matter when it is. You've got to come out and try to smooth things over with him. And for your fan base, you've got to make it look like you're making an effort to keep this guy happy. Now, I give Arenado credit. He said he's come in. He's not going to let it be a distraction. He's not worried about it. As I said at the very beginning, talks about not holding grudges. I don't expect for a moment that Arenado isn't going to give 100% to the Colorado Rockies while he's wearing that uniform, whether it's for the next seven years, whether it's for the next six months, whatever it may be. I don't question that guy's level of effort at all. Uh, But the organization itself needs to be front and center to say, look, we understand why he's not happy with us, and we're doing everything we can uh, within reason to to, to fix the problem that we have with him.
0: Yeah, I mean, the organization has to set the tone when it comes to getting the players in to set the winning in motion, if you will. They've got some talent there. There's no two ways about it, but they don't have all the talent they need to compete in a very tough division like the NL West.
1: All right, the Braves made some moves, as I'm sure that most of the people listening are aware of this already, extending the contracts of the manager, Brian Snitker, and his coaching staff all the way through 2021, as well as GM Alex Anthropolis. Who got a nice bump as he's now the GM and president of baseball operations? They've been very successful the last couple of years, back to back division titles, but going out in the first round of the postseason in both years. Do the Braves have the right leadership in place to finally? Get past the first round?
0: I think that they do. And I think that 2020 is going to be the year that perhaps they answer that question because anybody listening to this podcast and that has been listening to the shows I've done for some number of time or just been a Braves fan for the last couple of decades knows that this postseason drought has gone on since 2001. That's the last time the Braves won a postseason series. Now, 14 consecutive division titles and all of that stuff. It was a tremendous run from 91 through 2005. But the run that has followed that has seen a smattering of success, some good years, some not so great years. The Braves, of course, went through a rebuild and came out the other side with those division titles. While they matched up with the Dodgers that first year and there might have been a feeling of can the plucky Braves, you know, up in up the Dodgers and, and score the upset and win that division series. I don't necessarily think that the Braves were heavily favored in that series. But the fact is, if you look at the National League Division series in 2019 against the Cardinals, the Braves flat out should have won that series. It didn't happen in game one for a variety of reasons. Didn't happen in game four. Those are two games that the Braves could have won before even getting to that game five debacle that happened last year. So as I look at it right now, I know that to a man, the Braves clubhouse respects and loves playing for brian snitker and i think that that is something that is hard to find and hard to replicate year over year as well because the, uh, you know bill the shelf life of managers sometimes is not very long and clubs get very impatient but i think the braves like having the stability that brian brings and the fact that he's been in the organization for four decades doesn't hurt either he's got that respect going and with alex andopolis coming in and uh, building off of some of the work that had been done to build a great farm system and looking, I think, to maybe finally put his mark on one big signature move. I still expect there to be a trade, perhaps a blockbuster trade, maybe before spring training's over, but if not, perhaps by the trade deadline because the Braves have a lot of pitching in the minor leagues, and I think that they've got to turn that into things they need at the big league level because you don't know how long your playoff window of contention is, and I think the Braves need to find out the answers to those questions about the leadership and also – What do we need to take that next step? Elevating the payroll is great, but flat out, they've got to figure out the way to get the right talent in, to put them over the top, get past the division series, and maybe steamroll their way deep into October because it's been a while since the Braves have been able to do that.
1: As you know, it's about the players. The GM isn't throwing pitches. The GM isn't up there hitting. He's right. the guy who puts them together. And, and Snicker, I think, has done a good job. Again, you don't win 90 games and then 97 games in back-to-back years because you don't know how to manage a baseball team. Look, the playoffs are a crapshoot. You mentioned 2018 in the Dodgers. They played the best team, in my mind, who was the best team in baseball in the National League that year. Yeah. There's no shame in getting beat by the Dodgers. If you look at it, every team – in 162 games, will have a bad five- or seven-game stretch. You may go two and three over five games in June. You might go three and four in seven games in August. Nobody's going to blink an eye. You do that in the playoffs, and you're out. Yeah. It's over. Yep. Um, and the playoffs are a crapshoot. So to me right now, the Braves, more than anything, have just had bad playoff luck at times, whether it's the matchup and having to play the Dodgers, or last year when they were four outs away in game four, and just couldn't get it done against the Cardinals. And we've seen the Cardinals pull that off against a lot of teams. It happened to the Nationals way back when. So I think the Braves will be fine. They just need some some postseason bounces to go their way. And I think if they get past that first series, as you mentioned, it's been nine straight, if you include the one-game wild card game that they lost, nine straight series that they've lost the last nine times they've been in the playoffs. I think they just need that one- one break to get them through, much like the Nationals had in 2019. They got that one break to beat Milwaukee in the wild card game and then ran their way through to a World Series title. I think the Braves may be in that same type of situation where they just, as a team, need to have that happen, and then it's easier. You can take a deep breath, let it out, and go, okay, that's done. Let's get the next one finished.
0: Yeah, and I think the Braves are starting to feel themselves in this role of a club that knows how to win. And when you go through 3 straight years of losing 90 plus games and you finally have that success again, winning feels good, but it's also, I don't want to say a foreign concept, but it's also a little bit different when it comes to replicating that and keeping it going and finding the way to have the consistency of winning, you know, time in and time out, but I think that Brian Snitker's done a nice job of really managing that clubhouse from a personality perspective because we can sit here and we can pick apart all of the manager's decisions in hindsight for all 30 teams as you mentioned the players are the ones who win and lose these games i know a lot of times that you know the players win the manager's the guy that lost the game for you though because he made the bad decision he went with the wrong pitcher he left the starter in too long he didn't pinch it for this guy or he did pinch it for this guy and he shouldn't have or I'm sick of seeing these double switches. There's a lot of different things you can look at and get frustrated about. And that's kind of part of the fun of baseball as well as trying to manage from your couch at home or manage from the stands or whatever it is. But, you know, the one guy that's trying to do all that, he gets one shot at that real time and is going to know a lot of different factors on a given night that the average person is not going to be aware of. And I think that Brian has done a pretty darn good job of, again, getting 25 and now what's going to have to be 26 guys to be going in that same direction and playing as a cohesive unit. As you mentioned, I mean, one ground ball to a right fielder gets fielded properly in the National League wildcard game. Who knows if the Nationals go on to win that game and go on to win the World Series. And for the Braves, if one guy could have had a sack fly in game four, maybe the Braves had got that division series salted away. And they're going on to the National League Championship Series to play whoever ended up there. And the Braves had a pretty good record against Washington. I wanted to see that series. I thought that would have been one of the most fun National League Championship Series in recent memory, at least for me. And I've been watching the Braves for a long time.
1: Oh, it would have been a great series. I think Washington and and Atlanta would have been helped fuel this rivalry yeah. that they've started up over the past you know five, six, seven years. It would have been fantastic. Again, you don't win 97 games because you're a bad manager, you have bad players. Winning is hard. It's easy to lose, whether it's the regular season or in the playoffs. That's the easy thing to do. Winning, as you talked about, and learning how to win is probably the hardest thing to do in sports. It sounds dumb, but winning is hard. And to win 90, 97 games, you've done your job the last couple of years. Just a short series And for whatever reason, the bounces haven't gone their way so far.
0: And it sounds obvious when you say, yes, winning is hard. Well, of course it is. It is for all sports. But one of the things that I think goes hand in hand with that is, you know, when you have that culture and when you have the focus of the team and where it needs to be each and every day, one of the big jobs I think of the manager is to keep people from kind of spiraling over time when you do hit the skids in the middle of june or july and you lose seven straight games and you're trying to figure out man how did that happen or you go two and ten over a two week stretch and you're trying to figure out hey where did our five game lead in the division go all of a sudden it's down to one game or whatever the case is those are the things that over the course of a long season i think that's where a manager really earns his money is being able to keep his team resilient and ready to bounce back and i think brian's done a great job of that as far as alex Anthopoulos, you know, I, Again, I still think there's a signature move out there for him to make. It has not happened yet as far as that big trade that I think is going to be the linchpin of when the Braves take a step from being a very good team to perhaps a great team and maybe one of the best teams in the National League by the time it's all said and done.
1: No question. And I think they're already there as far as one of the best teams – in the National League. Certainly, winning two straight division titles has to put you in that conversation.
0: For sure, for sure. We'll see if the Pocota system projects them to win more than 83 games one of these years. I'll be looking forward to that. But uh, (laughs) meanwhile, the uh, American League East is also a very tough division, as is the National League East. And the Yankees spent a bunch of big money on Garrett Cole in order to bolster the rotation. I think that was the one area that they really wanted to focus on. The club, though, was also counting on Luis Severino to be healthy and productive And that plan hit a snag this week as Severino experienced some forearm discomfort, which actually dates back to his pitching in October as well. So this has happened before. He has been shut down for the time being. Not a timetable yet, but if the Yankees lose Severino for an extended period, Bill, that would be a significant setback for what they were hoping would be a powerhouse rotation. We joked
1: about the Yankees uh, when they were going to be missing James Paxton for a couple of months and how it might mean – that they'll end up winning 100 games instead of 105 or 110. Mm -hmm. You add another arm down, the Yankees might be getting a little more nervous about how their division dominance may go this year. They're still clearly the best team in the AL East, but we've seen lots of teams get derailed by a simple injury or two, and they're not able to have guys come in and replace them, or guys end up being hurt longer than they thought, or you get to the playoffs and that injury starts flaring up again. The weird thing to me is there doesn't seem to be anything structurally wrong, or at least they haven't been able to find it according to reports. Right. But, they, but they haven't said that he's going to need surgery or anything like that, so maybe he'll be okay. But I do find it odd that they can't find what the problem is with him. And anytime you have injuries that linger like this, I mean, you hope the guy can end up being healthy, but it might be a situation where he comes back, he goes back on the DL, he comes back. He may be in and out the entire year for this team
0: yeah and that's going to be the interesting thing is how significant is this injury because again this cropped up in the american league championship series last year whereas severino was dealing with that after his game three start against houston that series was over in six games and and aaron boone their manager said that severino was slated to pitch that game seven so clearly he was going to come back out and make another appearance but how long was he going to pitch of course would be a question if he's dealing with a forearm issue and then it goes all the way through the winter and the first week that you come back for spring training and get on the field and start doing the workouts, this crops up again. But this is a guy that only made what three regular season starts for New York last year, was able to pitch in October. Of course, you wanted him then. But he was a 19-game winner a couple of years ago, has front-of-the-rotation stuff. This is a guy that when you brought in Garrett Cole, you felt like, hey, we're we're putting this guy in lockstep with Severino and with Paxton and with Tanaka, and you start feeling kind of good about what you got there one through four. And then all of a sudden, two of these guys may or may not be available to start the season. We already know about Paxton, but as you mentioned Severino, uh, that's, uh, that's another hit for a club that really wanted to answer some questions when it came to the starting rotation. And it's amazing to think of this club as being a, a team that could win 100 games and do so without really having its full accompaniment of starting pitchers because they did it last year.
1: So, you think maybe 98 instead yeah. of yeah. If they've dropped
0: down to the 97 <laughs> win plateau, I'm just not sure if they're going to be able to get into triple digits. But, yeah, I mean, it, it's an embarrassment <laughs> of riches. But then again, I mean, and we're certainly not making light of the injuries whatsoever. But the Yankees were hoping that they spent some big money on Garrett Cole, but also had the pieces in house already in place so that he could take them to the next level.
1: Yeah, no question. And,. and you look around with the Red Sox uh, moving bets, they're going to be down. Mm-hmm. Toronto, I think, we've as we've talked about, Young, their lineup's going to be really good. I question their pitching rotation. So, really, it's whether Tampa Bay, with their shoestring budget, can still try to keep uh, up with the Yankees. I, I don't know that anybody else in that AL East this year is going to be able to do that. I, they're still far and away. Even if Severino has to miss a bunch of time, even if Paxton doesn't pitch until, say, July, they're still, by and large – Uh, the overwhelming favorite in that division.
0: Yeah, I agree, if not all, the American League as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. All right, Cleveland Indians having some pitching problems of their own after they traded Corey Kluber to the Rangers. The Tribe has now lost two of their starting pitchers already this spring, and it's not even March yet. Mike Clevenger had knee surgery. He's going to begin the season on the injured list, and now Carlos Carrasco has suffered a leg injury and could also miss time. Cleveland, one of those teams that people thought may be able to hang with Minnesota in the AL Central, but they're going to need all of these guys to be able to pitch if they're going to have any type of chance.
0: Yeah, and when you think about Kluber already being gone, a member of the Texas Rangers, that was a move that you knew was going to test the depth of what has been a really talented rotation for the Cleveland Indians for a number of years now. But if you move Kluber, you're kind of feeling like, all right, well, Clevenger is ready to take that next step, and I think that he is but it's going to be hard to do it from the injured list after suffering that knee injury. And then for Carrasco, Bill, you know, his story was one of the, I think most heartwarming that we had in 2019 Mm -hmm. as he overcame leukemia and made his big comeback. So I hate to see him suffering an injury, especially just this is a much more run of the mill kind of thing to be an athlete and, you know, have a leg injury. But after all that he's overcome, I just hate to see him have to have any kind of setback that keeps him on the sideline because That was not only a big story in terms of the comeback for him personally, professionally, uh, and for all the people that have been connected to, and I think we all are in some way, the fact that cancer, I think, touches us all, I guess, to make a long story short. You had to feel good about seeing what Carrasco did last year, and that's all kind of the personal stuff. But from the Indian standpoint, they need a healthy Carrasco to step in because that rotation is going to have to set the tone for the Cleveland Indians to have a chance to win that division.
1: If Clevenger doesn't get hurt and they go into the year with Clevenger, Shane Bieber, and Zach Plesac as their one, two, and three, I think that's probably where they would have slotted these guys. Yeah, you'd you'd feel pretty good about your situation if you're Cleveland. Uh, you know, if you're manager Terry Franconi, you're, you've got a one, two, and three, and then Carrasco. You know, when he came back, he wasn't the same guy, and not to be expected after he missed all that time uh, with his with his battle with leukemia. But if he's your four. That's still not a bad spot to be in because right. he kind of eases his way back in. You're not there's not a lot of pressure on him, but with those two both being down, uh, you know, Plezac, a young kid, Bieber, they both pitched well, but I don't, I'm not sure they're ready to be number one, number two. Um, as long as Clevenger's out, they got a couple of young, intriguing arms. Uh, Logan Allen, 22, a lefty. I think, I mean, he was not good last year in his major league debut, and the and I think he got six or seven starts with them, but his stuff people say should be able to play at the major league level at some point. It's just, will that be 2020 or is it not going to be until 21, 22, which case doesn't do them any good going into this season?
0: Yeah. But you never know where these opportunities come from. And somebody steps up and does something unexpected and it really maybe comes into their own and has that career, that breakout year. I know for the Braves last year, as we broke camp in spring training, they had two young arms in Kyle Wright and Bryce Wilson, who were both in their starting rotation They weren't there for very long, though, because Max Freed got pulled out of the bullpen and put back in a starting rotation, and Mike Soroka came along after being sidelined during the spring after uh, suffering a a flare-up of a shoulder injury, doing some off-season workouts, and then by the end of the year, Max Freed and Mike Soroka, maybe not in that order, were the best pitchers that the Braves had. Both of them had breakout years, so who's to say maybe one of these young Indian starters doesn't step up with this opportunity and really run with it, but they're going to need that if they're going to overcome especially the loss of Clevenger and then having Carrasco perhaps be sidelined as well it really tests the depth and that's one thing that the Indians as you talked about them year over year over year they had the starting pitching that made you feel like they could make that run toward October and perhaps make a run through October as well
1: yeah if if they can get uh Carrasco back to what he was a couple years ago That certainly will keep them in the division race for a little bit longer. Clevenger, I'm not sure what they've been saying. I I haven't seen a timetable on it as far as when they expect him back. Yeah, If it's only a couple months, if he's back by, say, June, and they're still within shouting distance, then Lindor probably sticks around. Maybe they make a run at it. I mean, that to me, it's funny. This is the domino thing, Grant, that Mm -hmm. these type of injuries – can be the reason Lindor ends up getting traded.
0: Yeah, it's crazy to think about because one of the reasons I think they traded Corey Kluber was to move that money so that they'd have funds available as they try to perhaps keep Francisco Lindor around for years to come. But that, of course, will be a bridge they'll have to cross at some point in the next year or two. But uh, that aside with the Cleveland Indians, let's finish things up on maybe a comeback story of a different type as Oriole slugger Chris Davis has been through some really tough times the past few years at the plate. His hitless streak of course in 2019 drew some serious attention, but his struggles have had Davis pondering retirement this winter. He is owed 23 million dollars a year for each of the next 3 seasons. He put on 25 pounds of muscle with off-season workouts this winter, and he's going to try to recapture, I guess the magic that he had as a 50 plus homer hitter a few years ago with Baltimore to earn that big-time contract. But Bill, I guess very simply, do you think Davis has a big comeback up his sleeve?
1: No. That's that's very that's simple. A, that's yes. Better answer than that. But no. And, and I, I mean, I say it next but look, I, I don't care about him putting on the 25 pounds of muscle, right? right because right. it's the strikeout rate. Doesn't matter how big and strong you are. If you don't hit the baseball in the past couple of years, he doesn't hit the baseball. Look, man, prove me wrong. And, and that's fine. I I enjoy that. If it's a comeback story and he ends up hitting 35 home runs for them. And and can get his average even up to 240, which he hasn't done since he hit that big since he got that big contract a few years ago. Then yes, I guess it's a comeback story for the Orioles, who aren't going to be in contention and aren't very good this year. But you look at the numbers, Baltimore would have been better off over the last four years of his contract since he signed that big deal with just a replacement level player. He yeah. is a negative .5 in wins over replacement over the past four years. He's actually a minus three something. Over the past two years, they could have had a regular replacement player play would have been better off and it wouldn't have cost them twenty three million dollars a year.
0: Yeah, I mean, this contract was brought on by the fact that Chris Davis turned into one of the premier sluggers in the American League upon joining the Orioles. It didn't take him very long to get himself established in 2012. he got regular playing time with Baltimore, hit thirty three home runs, in one hundred thirty nine games. Then came the monster year, fifty three homers, one hundred thirty eight runs knocked in another 42 doubles for him as he became an all-star in 2013 at 27 then he slumped to under 200 the next year so that was the first kind of bump in the road for him then he bounces back hits 47 home runs leads the league there strikes out 200 times but still hit 262 and turned in an ops well over 900 so that production i can deal with the strikeouts but it was after that that the averages dropped 221 215, 168 And then 179 last year. So, as you mentioned, you're not even really getting league average play here. The strikeouts, of course, are very troublesome. It's something we see across a lot of baseball, though. Guys aren't afraid to strike out, but Chris Davis's power numbers have also gone down 38, 26, 16, and then only 12 home runs last year. You can't blame a lack of home runs on the shift. So, you know, maybe that's uh, the cause of some of the hits going away for him. But uh, for Chris Davis, I I know that the offseason workouts are a point of pride for him. But one of the things I think that he made a point of was he wasn't trying to reinvent his swing. And I find that to be a little bit curious.
1: Yeah, I've seen some other, obviously, up here, Washington, Baltimore area, we get uh, both O's coverage and Nationals coverage. And I've seen some things where he's talked about, oh, I've tried to tweak it in the past and it didn't work. And I'm like, well, dude, whatever you're doing right now doesn't work. So find somebody else that can tweak it for you. Maybe getting his head back on straight, maybe getting in the gym and putting on the 25 pounds of muscle, maybe that'll get him back into his groove. But to me, the swing just has so many holes in it. And quite frankly, it's gotten slow as well. Again, being in this area, we get to see a lot of the highlights and their games are on all the time up here and you watch it. And when he comes up to bat, he just doesn't look like he has a plan when he goes up there. To me, that's more disturbing than, okay, you know, he said he was a little thin at the end of last season and lost all the weight from the stress and everything else. But to me, unless he's fixed the mechanics of the swing where it's not long and looping and and slow, quite frankly, I'm not sure it's going to be much better than what we've seen the last couple of years.
0: Yeah, I'll tell you what's not slowing down is the amount of money that the Orioles owe him, including the deferred money on his deal, $93 million left of the $161 million contract that he signed with them, Four years ago so a seven-year contract at 161 million dollars is what Davis got he has said and I do think this is admirable he wants to earn that money and that he did ponder walking away from uh, the remainder of this contract as well but I I mean it's a problem that I will probably never face in my life you know the the pride that you want to take in what you do and then maybe feeling like well I'm getting paid an awful lot of money but I'm not the player I used to be and I don't know how to get back there so I do understand that a lot of the mental fatigue and the stress that comes with this cannot be an easy road to navigate for chris davis a lot of people feel like well money kind of solves everything but in this case i think this is probably a lot more complicated than a lot of folks are giving chris davis the grace i guess i would say to understand kind of what he's going through because hey somebody out there's always got it worse and chris davis has what i would refer to as a first world problem but i do understand and empathize i guess a bit with what he's trying to navigate and where he's trying to get back to at age 33, 34, somewhere that, as an athlete, you can't turn back the hands of time. Uh, you know, Time's undefeated. A few more cliches, but uh, for Chris Davis, this has been a very challenging portion of not only his career but also his life.
1: Yeah, it's interesting, as you mentioned, all that money that's left on his contract, and and some of that is deferred so he would get it anyway, even if he walked away. But he mentioned having a conversation with his wife during the offseason. How do you think that one went? $23 $23 million. You think the wife was like, hey, Chris, I think you can handle hitting 180 for another season. We can put another $23 million in the bank account.
0: Yeah. I mean, he just said he wants to earn this money. And I do have a lot of respect for somebody looking at it in that fashion and not just kind of coming in and giving you the stock answers and, hey, I'm in the best shape of my life. It's going to be a big year and everybody just moves on. I mean, Chris Davis has been answering these questions for a while. That can't be easy because there's nowhere he can really go to forget about how where the struggles have been how bad the struggles have been because somebody's going to be nice enough to remind him every day about are you going to be able to get back to where you are and now kind of the undercurrent of well do you think you'd just be better off walking away from a personal and professional pride standpoint that has to be again a very difficult road to walk
1: absolutely absolutely
0: All right, well, that takes us to the end of our starting nine for this week. We did talk a little bit of Astros, but hopefully we gave you a buffet of other baseball topics that were much more easily digestible or just perhaps better on the palate than some of that Astros talk. But, Bill, I enjoyed it as always and look forward to doing it again next week.
1: Absolutely. Uh, Have a great weekend to you and everybody that listens and uh, appreciate, again, all the feedback we get on Twitter. I love it, so uh, keep it coming.
0: Well, that'll wrap us up for this week's From the Diamond. As always, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Leave those ratings and reviews, and be sure you're connected on social media. On Twitter, at FromTheDiamond Diamond underscores, where you can find the show. I am at Grant McCauley, G-R-A-N-T-M-C-A-U-L-E-Y. And Bill Rowland is at Bill Rowland, B-I-L-L-R-O-H-L-A-N-D. On Instagram, at FromTheDiamond, you can follow the show there. I am at Grant McCauley as well. And everything, including every episode of the show, is available at fromthediamond.com. Just a reminder, as we kick off a nice weekend slate of exhibition baseball we're all looking forward to, my Braves Positional Preview Series is up there if you want to read it. It's in five parts. And I've also started the audio companion to the preview series. I've got Corey McCartney, who works over at Talking Chop right now. Corey's going to be joining me to do all five parts of that series in audio form. So look out for that coming along as well throughout the next couple of weeks. But as I mentioned, we've got baseball this weekend. Exhibition games are going to get started down in Florida as the Braves open things up against the Baltimore Orioles. That game is televised, so you can watch a little bit of baseball this weekend. We can get back in the swing of things both literally and figuratively as opening day draws closer by the day. I hope you're all looking forward to that. I know that I most certainly am. So once again, thanks to Bill Rowland for jumping on the show. And thanks to you for taking time to listen to From the Diamond. I'm Grant McCauley. We will catch you next week. And until then, so long, everyone.